Welcome to Critical Q&A number 228, live streaming here. Uh, it seems all is in order. Can you guys hear me uh, well and everything? I've got uh, I've got Melissa here on <laughs> on moderation <laughs> duty. <laughs> uh, hey, Oregon. Oh, good, good. Hey, Canada. Look at that. Boom. All right, we are here. Uh, this is good. I love live streaming. I really do. I mean, all the technical difficulties are always no fun, but uh, yeah. Will there be a bridge to nowhere part two? Uh, I don't know. Not that I know of. Uh, Barma, Stockholm, Sweden. Goddamn. Hey, North Carolina, London. Woot. Hey, everybody. Doing some live international live streaming here. It's great. <laughs> Uh, I, I wanted to, oh yes, I needed to, um, read something out because I had something, uh, I said I was going to do this. Uh, first off, let me, um, tweet this, uh, link out so people, uh, will see on Twitter that we are live. And while I'm doing this, you guys can, uh, start putting as you're welcoming on board here, you can start uh, throwing your questions into the chat box and uh, Melissa will be cut and pasting them, and we will be uh, getting on to answering your um, burning questions, I am sure, that you have for me. <laughs> Let's see here. Let me uh, just tweet this out. We are live. Uh, come join us. Join us. Join us. Come join us. <laughs> we have cookies. Uh, copy that. We are live. Come join us for some Q&A. All right. Melissa is very excited about this. <laughs> All right. How are, we, uh, how are we doing here? Connecticut, New York, London. God damn, I love it. Washington. I actually made it to a live stream. Yay, Megan. All right. Okay. Have you ever examined how MLMs are similar to cults? Uh, somebody fires at me here. Yes, I absolutely have. Um, I have not. Have I done a? I don't think I've done a podcast about that. I think I've been meaning to, but I have certainly addressed it in earlier um, critical Q and A shows. Uh, I've I've had uh, talks with people uh, like in in real life, not on the show. Who were former Amway, you know, people. Um, of course, my folks did Amway for a while when we were uh, in the '80s, when it was uh, kind of becoming a thing to do. Um, and there are definitely cult uh, control manipulation tactics used extensively throughout multi-level marketing schemes. Um, specifically, there, you know, when, when with something like Amway you know, you're kind of the product, right? It's kind of like Facebook, right? Or social media. Like you think the product is selling these pieces of, you know, the soap and the, the product line that they have. And you think you're going to go in there and you're going to sell this stuff and you're going to sell other people to sell that stuff, you know, and you're going to get a little commission, you're going to get a little taste of that. And it's all going to flow on up the line. And you see and are presented with these very, very rich, affluent, successful people who claim that they got that way through Amway, let's say, or through whatever the MLM is. And uh, all you have to do is follow in their footsteps and everything will be great. And you come to find out that it's not about selling the products. It's about selling other people on the hope that they can be as successful as these guys at the top. And of course, nobody else can be. There's, it's a very small group of people who could be at the top. But they give you they pay, pay this picture to you that everybody can rise to the top, and it, that's not the case, right? That's not how it works. Uh, if you actually like kind of do the math and everything, it doesn't work at all. So what you end up having to do is buy. You end up as this low level guy. You get into this thinking you're going to become an upper level guy, and you soon find out that what they're actually selling you is are are uh, books and CDs and DVDs about how to be a better Amway rep or salesperson and how to pump you up. It's all about pumping you up to um, 
to sell these CDs and DVDs and, and this stuff to your friends and family and contacts and anybody else you can find. So now you're not selling products, you're selling DVDs and CDs and you're trying to, you know, pump up your friends and family on on the hope and 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 how awesome this is all going to be. And that kind of and it just kind of goes around and around and around in this endless hamster wheel of nowhere. Kind of like Scientology. Uh, in that respect. And there's a lot of pressure. And the, the cult stuff isn't that all of that is just this kind of silly, ridiculous sales scheme. The cultish stuff comes in with the deception, with the undue influence, where they're pushing and pushing and pushing you to do more and more and more, spend more and more of your time, more and more of your money working on this futile effort to become this elite person that you're that is, you know, you can't really ever rise to. So that's how MLMs, or that's one way at least, uh, from the from the discussions I've had about it, that's one way MLMs uh, mirror or parallel what cults do. Uh, okay, what else we got here? Oh, here we go. Uh, oh yeah, trip to Spain. <laughs> hey, Kyle's asking about that. Yeah, we added, we did a vacation to Spain, and um, I, you know, we didn't do any video or anything while we were there because I was, I was really trying to have a vacation, like a real one. And I failed miserably, of course, because I always do, um, at least on getting on social media and stuff. But, um, but I did leave my camera at home <laughs> and we just had a week in Barcelona and Barcelona is amazeballs. Absolutely beautiful city, very cosmopolitan, lots of international flavor there, tons of food. Oh my God. Really good food. And, um, what did, what did you think? I loved it. <laughs> I thought the beach was beautiful. I loved the old architecture and everything and going to the Gaudi Museum and all that. Oh, yeah, the Gaudi houses. That's right. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. There's some amazing architecture there. There's this guy, Gaudi, from uh, I think he was turn of the century. And he had a very organic, natural sort of uh, style of architecture. He didn't really believe in 90-degree angles. Uh, in fact, he was very contemptuous of all of that, and he wanted to build buildings that emulated in nature and 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 continued uh, a, a very natural look of things. And so we got to see uh, La Sagrada Familia, which was his sort of crowning achievement. It's going to end up being, when it's done, the tallest church in the world. And it is truly an impressive structure still being constructed. The central towers aren't done yet. It's already gigantic. And uh, and then other houses or buildings that he had. I think an apartment building. We toured an mm -hmm, apartment mm -hmm. building. Um, what was that? Uh, what was it? Mila. Mila music something. Yeah, something Mila, something Mila or something. Yeah. Uh, my Spanish is horrible still. But um, anyway, had a lot of fun with all of that. Really enjoyed seeing the Mediterranean for the first time. That was cool. Um, and being on the beach and the beaches there are kind of different from American beaches. <laughs> <laughs> we saw things we don't normally see on American beaches, parts of people we don't normally see on American beaches. <laughs> and I'm only laughing about it, not because I'm a prude, but I just think it's, uh, I think it's kind of awesome actually that people in Europe are definitely not, um, it, it seemed from the short time that we were there and the things that we saw and the way we saw people dressed and walking around and talking and acting that there is less body shaming or fat shaming or concern about that kind of thing over there. Um, and that was really cool. Um, and also at the same time, there are a lot of very good looking people over there. You know, it was, it's a very different vibe over there from how it is uh, in America. And I loved it. I, I think we both did. So, uh, yeah, so that was Spain. <laughs> and feel free to ask me anything specific about it. I just, I'm just kind of, you know, bah, bah, bah here about it. Um, okay, let's see here. Ha Fred asks, have you seen Becoming a God in Central Florida? No, what's that? I don't know what that is. I, I've seen, um, I saw Bill Maher do a thing, I think it was in Florida, where he went to some uh, what was that? Like a, a, an amusement park? Was uh -huh. like a Christian amusement park yeah. or something? And Jesus was walking around talking to people. That was weird. I haven't I haven't gone there, but we saw we saw that. But I don't know what becoming a god is. I'm not sure if that's what that is. Um. Okay, Kyle asks, have you heard any update on Marty Rathbun as he has been quiet? Uh, I'm curious his reaction with the whole lawsuit and 
how will that affect him? Um, Marty's pretty much out of the picture as far as all of us are concerned. We really don't pay a lot of attention. And by we, I mean uh, the people I know uh, in the ex-Scientology community or, you know, the, the anti-cult activism community or whatever you want to call it. Um, we, you know, we, we, Marty, Marty burned his bridges uh, and, and like with nuclear explosives. I mean, he, th those things are not getting rebuilt. And so when he gets trotted out to do some video to bash Leah and Mike and talk about how nobody, of none of us really know what we're talking about, and we're all just full of hyperbole, and we exaggerate our claims, and we exaggerate all the horribleness, and all blah, 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 nobody cares what he has to say anymore at all, like, like no one. Uh, you know, I think there are, uh, I think his blog is still up. Uh, which is kind of strange. And I think he gets like, you know, two or three. I mean, this is the last time I checked, which was months ago. Uh, I don't keep up on his stuff. But um, last time I did see anything with him, it was like two or three people. Go Marty, you know. And as far as I'm concerned, they could probably be working for Osa just like he is. I mean, it. you know, whether the guy is officially back in Scientology, I don't think I don't think that's the case. But is he on Scientology's side or payroll or is he working for them? Absolutely he is. There's no question about it. So, uh, you know, none of us know anything else more specific than that because we're not in touch with him and don't have any data about him. And I'm not sure what happened. Um, his uh, attorney, uh, Ray, was um, was going to go after him for like, hey, what? You know, you got you fired us, and we didn't get any money, and now you're off and doing this stuff. But that kind of that kind of went nowhere, as far as I know. So, um, so that's that's what I know about Marty, which is really not a lot. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I can say about him. <laughs> I hope that's not disappointing. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, Kyle's also asking. I was curious what your dad does, as I only hear about your mom or your wife. And what was his reaction to the whole Scientology situation? Oh, sure. Um, my dad is out of Scientology officially. Uh, he still believes in some of the tenets of Scientology, um, but he is not uh, like an independent Scientologist or something. I don't, you know, I don't, he doesn't do that. Um, he's retired and he is living his life. And, uh, and, and I'm in touch with him, you know, every now and again, and we have a good relationship. Um, I'm in touch with my mom a bit more, not because I favor my mom or something. It's just kind of the way things work. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the situation with my dad. You know, he's he's uh, he's definitely out of Scientology, and uh, and we've talked about that. He likes my work. We've talked about you know we he and I see eye to eye on a lot of things uh, politically and uh, and in terms of general state of the world. And trying to just kind of help individuals out, and he does stuff. He's done mentoring, tutoring, things like that. He's he tries to stay active and in, in helping people out. So that's what I can say about him. Uh, can you elaborate on health slash athletics and the tech? Is it something that is a thing in Scientology auditing for better health or physical ability? Oh yeah, sure. Um, Hubbard actually tried at one point to get Scientology. I think they succeeded actually in having Scientologists doing some assist work with uh, an Olympic team. I think this was in the 60s. At least Hubbard was bragging about this in some lecture. They were talking about this. Um, and, uh, and there are Scientology athletes. There was also in the 80s, there was a Scientologist who was an Olympic uh, gymnast athlete. I forgot his name. Um, so, uh, and there was also, Scientology in the 80s was also connected up with the professional racing circuit. Tom Cruise got involved in some professional racing, or not professional racing, but in car racing when he did Days of Thunder. And he was uh, hanging with Paul Newman from his uh, Color of Money time is when he met Paul Newman. And Paul Newman was seriously into car racing. And so Tom Cruise got into it for a while with him. And uh, Scientology sponsored, a, I think, a French racer, and um, and they were and they had Diane Antique on the side of the guy's race car and stuff. So there was an effort made in the '80s uh, 
to get involved in the professional sports arena with assists and Scientology, you know, like vocationals and that kind of level of, of, um, of assistance on the field. And then also, of course, using auditing to improve reaction time and uh, de-stress athletes and this kind of thing. So that's about the only effort I know of that was made in that direction. Um, and then it kind of got dropped. I think what I remember seeing, ooh, stomach feels a little funny today. Um, I remember seeing uh, that there was an accident of some kind with uh, with that with that French racer. I think he got into an accident or something. And then there was a flap of some kind connected with that. And then the whole thing kind of faded away and we never heard about it anymore. That's all I know about that. So um, that's everything I can say about Scientology's official involvement with professional sports. Otherwise, Scientologists will try to use Scientology methods like assists and locationals, things like that. A locational is where you walk around and look at things and, and are directed to put your attention outside of yourself at other things around you. It's meant to bring you to present time and sort of orient you and get you out of your head a little bit. And, you know, it's not a bad practice to do to walk around the environment and look at things if you're feeling a little introverted. And that's basically the purpose of it. Um, so you have assists and locationals, things like that that can help people out. Um, and that's about as practical uh, a use as Scientology has for for sports figures. Uh, let's see. Italy next trip, Lorenzo asks. Maybe. <laughs> you know, definitely on our list. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, babe? That'd be fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife does have Italian roots. And, uh, and we definitely would love to go and explore some of the uh, physicality of those roots. <laughs> Sometimes I say things so dumb. Uh, Stephen Willis, hey, any chance of an appearance by His Holiness Lord Seven? Oh, if he would, uh, you know, let's go see. Yeah, Melissa, we'll go check it out. He's, he's, he's trolling around in the, uh, in the living room right now. We'll, we'll see if we can drag him in here. He is so camera shy. It is so funny trying to get him on, on camera. It is always a challenge. Uh, even to get little photos or something I can post up on Twitter, you know, uh, hashtag seven, the wonder cat. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. Uh, Robert Scott, is that a Zorg shirt? Yes, it is. Yes. This is Zorg. Uh, from the movie The Fifth Element. Oh, here he is. <laughs> ah, here's our boy. This is Seven. And he just, he has the nicest feeling coat right now because he just got taken. Yeah, he got groomed yesterday. Yeah. So, he's he such a little cutie. Yeah, Even though he hates being on camera. See how there's all those people looking at you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay, humans. I've I've had you've had your way with me. Now it is time <laughs> to let me go. Uh who's your favorite Star Wars character never to appear in a movie? And why is it Grand Admiral Thrawn? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um to never appear in a movie. Um I'm not sure I understand that question, but I, if you're talking about Star Wars characters outside of the cinematic universe of star wars that have that that i would like um i don't i'm really just a star wars movie guy um in fact i'm probably going to do a podcast about star wars this week just for fun a friend of mine and i are gonna uh just collaborate and just and just talk star wars i thought that might be kind of fun as a podcast kind of bring the you know most of my podcasts are so serious and and with good reason, right? I'm not saying that, you know, I do bad work, but I'm just saying that they're so serious. And I thought, hey, let's do a Star Wars one. So I but I but I'm my Star Wars experience and and love um and passion is all about the movies. I've never been about the 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 extended uh, Star Wars universe, the books and the comic books and uh, the the Star Wars Rebels and the animated shows and stuff. I've I'd never watched really any of that stuff, and I'm probably denying myself a certain level of of fun and, and games with that. But um, but I'm just kind of I, the movies are my my Star Wars experience, and uh, I'll have a lot more to say about it in the podcast. But that's uh, I yeah, don't really have one. Uh, J S, 
when are you going to the UK? I want to take you to the St. Hill Manor. We can do the Hubbard House tour. They won't know. <laughs> They'll probably know if I show up. <laughs> I am 1000% positive this mug is in every one of their uh, rogues galleries that uh, the Sea Org security keeps up on every base around the world to keep out the bad elements. You know, they don't want us, uh, us SPs lurking about their properties. However, uh, we definitely have UK on our list as well. Uh, so um, I definitely have it on my on my list of things to do to see St. Hill Manor uh, somehow, maybe from a distance, because I'm positive they're not going to let me on the property. But I still think it would be fun to get out there. So uh, so that'll happen. That'll definitely happen. Um, okay, Tamara King, do you have siblings? Are they in Scientology? I have a brother. Uh, he's a younger brother of mine. He, um, great guy. And he is the black sheep of the family as far as Scientology goes. He managed to avoid getting involved with Scientology all through the time that he grew up. And that was um, not looked upon kindly by our family. There was a lot of pressure on him and he resisted it. He was, uh, you know, he had his ups and downs in life, <laughs> all kinds of them. Uh, I was very academic, for example, in school. I was very nerdy. I was very into reading and, and science-y stuff, as you can imagine. He wasn't, right? He was more a get-out, sportsy kind of guy. And, um, and that would run into some, he would run into academic trouble. And my dad would try and try and try to use the Scientology study tech with him to get him to learn. And it just really didn't work. And looking back on it, of course, I can see all our failings in trying to sh shove a round peg into a square hole in trying to make that stuff work for the trouble he was having in school. But his trouble in school was not that he didn't understand the words. There, was, there were other issues. And trying to make that be the problem continued the problem. So... Um, so that, so there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of problems with him up and downs, uh, with him as a teen and, and young adult, um, that Scientology was not in any way helpful for. And, uh, and we never questioned the Scientology part of it. That's what's so funny in hindsight, looking back on it, you know, we never thought, well, the Scientology isn't working. We just thought there's something wrong with his or issues still in our family with any of that after Scientology kind of got out of the picture, which for my parents and my brother all happened in the 90s. And for me, of course, happened in 2012. After all of that went down, um, we really communicated a lot with each other about the past and the things that we had done and the things that had been done to us. And we really sorted all that stuff out. There are there are no issues within my family that I, I'll say there are no issues uh, based on all of that stuff, on the Scientology stuff. We've reconciled and resolved all of that. And uh, that took a lot of work, uh, but it was really good work to do. And it was very, very constructive work to do. So um, anyway, so that's, so yeah, that's the situation with my brother. He is, uh, in fact, recently married, has his own son. I have a, a nephew, Cooper, and he's, he's raising him out in California. And he is just, uh, he, in fact, he, um, my brother just bought his first house. So he's doing pretty good. Uh, okay. Kyle, again, thanks for letting me know regarding your dad. Could you tell me how he got out and did he leave before you? Yes. My parents both left Scientology before I did years before in terms of leaving official Scientology. This all happened in the late 80s and um, and 90s really is when they really pretty much went under the radar and just sort of faded off of the church uh, lines, so to speak. My dad got up to OT7 and my mom got up through OT5. And my dad also is a highly trained auditor in Scientology. He got up to the, he, he completed what's called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course in the 1970s, he did that. And that is the most extensive course there is in Scientology. And they don't they don't really deliver it anymore because Miscavige is really changing things. I mean, I just found out the other day, he's changing things even way more than even I had imagined he would be able to. So um, anyway, but that was, but my dad had a, had a, uh, put a lot of time into Scientology. Um, and then in, so in the 90s, 
having gotten basically to the top of the bridge, I mean, he didn't do OT8, but he did everything up to that. He said, well, you know, I pretty much got what I wanted out of this. And, uh, or at least everything he thought they could give him. And so, you know, he still, like I said, he still thinks that some of the principles of Scientology are true. And, you know, as a belief, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, if if I'm going to sit here and say, I don't care what you believe, then that's going to include my dad too, right? Um, he does not practice Scientology on people. And that would, that would be a thing that I would, you know, that I would have a, a issues with. And he doesn't do anything like that. So, uh, so we don't have any problems as far as that goes. And, uh, and then as far as them leaving the church, they just faded away. You know, they just kind of disappeared, moved away from Los Angeles. Uh, and once you're out of the geographical zone of a Scientology org, uh, or city level org, right? then it's a lot harder to get to you because they'd have to send somebody out to see you. And they do that sometimes. That's the kind of work I used to do for a while, going and knocking on the doors and and trying to get people back. My parents would have been the kind of people I was working on recovering. Um, Of course, I, you know, did try over the years to recover my parents and, uh, and that didn't work. (laughs) And that's a good thing. So uh, anyway, yeah, so that's how that happened. Let's see. Uh, Cat Burt had. Does Scientology have pets? Are dogs and cats too much work? So fish and small rodents more common. Scientologists in general, public Scientologists, have all kinds of pets. There's no restrictions on animal ownership, or there's no weird beliefs about animals or anything other than a lot of Scientologists definitely believe that their cats or their dogs are occupied by thetans uh, in the same way that you know uh, we are. Right. Uh, They're absolutely convinced of it. Just look in their eyes. Look at the love. Look at there's a being there. There's a there's somebody there. Right. Like they always say this shit. Uh, So they're they love their animals as much as anybody else does. And um, of course, Scientology, you know, the kids of Scientologists love their pets. And I had growing up, we had uh, dogs. We had a cat. We had I had a hamster, um, a guinea pig. I had a guinea pig, not a hamster. Uh, so yeah, so pets are not a, not really an issue in Scientology. Um, all right, Jacob Meyer, are there any aspects of Scientology that despite leaving still find helpful and used to this day? No, I used to say yes. And now I say no, (laughs) uh, because as I've progressed in my time coming out of Scientology, I have shedded more and more and more of it. And I don't say now or think with the idea that going and opening up a dictionary and, and looking up a word I don't understand is using Scientology. You know, that, that doesn't, that's not how I think about that anymore. Um, I don't use the study tech the way L. Ron Hubbard says to use it. I don't do word clearing. I don't, you know, go through the dictionary and look at every definition and come up with sentences. That's not, I, I don't do any of that anymore. So, um, because I don't find that useful or helpful to my educational process. I don't need to go into all that rigmarole in order to to look up a word and understand what it means in a particular context. And that's as far as I take it. So that has all that. And I talk about the study tech because that was for the longest time, the most practical part of what I considered the, the Scientology body of tech that I could still use. And so that was sort of the last thing to go away. I, for years after coming out of Scientology, I was still paying attention to uh, people in a context of the emotional tone scale of Scientology. I was still thinking with uh, PTS and and SP conditions and took me a while to kind of to shed that. And, um, and I'd say at this point, there isn't any Scientology that I'm still using in my life that I think is useful or helpful. I have, and I've always said, find, um, you know, find the thing that Scientology ripped off and do that. Don't, don't do the Scientology. Do, where did Hubbard get that stuff from, right? Go do that. <laughs> That'll be more useful to you. Uh, all right. Hey, we got a super chat. Preacher, 1138. Hey, thank you, man. Thanks for the contribution. That's awesome. All right. Now, in fact, he's the preacher's got the next question here. Uh, thanks for saying huge, huge question. Uh, was saying huge at all similar to speaking Scientologies? Do you go downstairs from saying it? No, it's just a big joke to me. 
It's huge. It's a huge joke. Uh, Kyle, why is Star Wars better than Star Trek? It's not. I actually like Star Trek slightly better than Star Wars. Um, if I've said different in the past, I changed my mind. <laughs> um, I like Star Trek more because of its humanitarian or humanist message of um, of, of tolerance and unity and that there is a pot potential future possible where the kind of conflict we see amongst our species, amongst human beings, doesn't exist the same way anymore. They have literally moved on from that and recognized that that level of inhumanity is an unacceptable way to conduct themselves as human beings. And I, I've always loved that part of the message. I think that's the core message of, of Star Trek. So I've always felt that Star Trek has a, a, a higher and sort of deeper meaning than something like Star Wars, which is a uh, it was was built on the idea of building on the old adventure yarns and the you know war movies and and old style uh, adventure tales you know which I also love I mean you know you, you the, the whole um, hero's journey and and all the things that happen there told in this really amazing and refreshing way with special effects and and space battles and things you know the, all of it completely unrealistic uh, but fun, you know, fun to watch and fun to be involved in. And once Star Wars got, uh, you know, a bit more started taking itself a little too seriously, I, I sort of got, you know, with the prequels and then the the new trilogy and stuff, I've, I've gotten more and more eh, about Star Wars, whereas Star Trek has always maintained for me that I've always held on to that core idea of what it's about. And then, of course, the other thing about Star Trek that is so uh, wonderful is the the core relationship between Kirk, Spock, and Bones, and that little triumvirate of of uh, logic and emotion and and a and a sort of central idea of let's go out and do some good and and uh, and that kind of thing. So um, anyway, that's what appeals to me about Star Trek more so than than Star Wars. Uh, okay, Teresa JS, what is the state of Saint Hill Manor? Is it still standing? Oh, yeah, well, that's a question for JS. <laughs> um, St. Hill Manor is still standing, by the way, uh, very much so. It's a, it's a, it's rec within the world of Scientology, St. Hill Manor and that whole area is, is one of the most important historical properties Scientology owns. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard developed modern Scientology there. That's where it all came from. Uh, so St. Hill should always be this uh, very, very important historic site for Scientology, and they keep up their properties. You know, say what you will about Scientology, they do keep up their properties. <laughs> uh, okay, when are you coming to Holland? Soon as I can. <laughs> um, are you close to your brother and talk with each other now? Yes, very much so, all the time. Talk to him all the time. Uh, let's see here. Flatpot did... Q&A find dirt on Bob Mitten. Oh, Osa. Did Osa find dirt on Bob Mitten and force him to quit the LMT? Yes, basically that is what happened. There was pressure put on Bob because of some financial shenanigans of some kind. I don't recall the specifics of it, um, but there were some kind of shenanigans he was involved in with tax evasion or something. I, I, I Don't quote me on that. I don't remember what it was about, but Scientology put a great deal of legal pressure on him uh, after, and he had been a thorn in their side for years. So they finally got him and got him off the, off the board and got him and people under him to recant and, and fight back against people who were suing the church. It was very ugly. It was a very, very ugly, very, very, uh, controversial time. And there were a lot of people who, um, who came out of that whole experience, you know, not for the better. And that really sucked. Scientology really screwed them over, uh, and that's what happened. Oh, another super chat. Yeah. Yay. Thanks, Paul. Awesome, man. Uh, okay, so I what I would like to do eventually, it the, the whole Lisa McPherson Trust time period is a complicated and, multi, you know, there's a lot of uh, moving parts in that time period, and I think it would be great to actually get a book written about that but I'm not telling you that I'm writing that book because I've already made, I've got enough projects I need to get done.
but it really deserves that kind of treatment. And hopefully someday that will be tackled because that is a very important part of um, the history of of Scientology, of of pushing back against Scientology. And it was a it was a very crucial time period. What happened with the LMT was was something that affected everything that is that happened afterwards. Everything I do, the Going Clear documentary, the anonymous movement, all of that stuff can be traced back to what happened at the LMT. So it's a story that really does need to be told. And I don't want to half tell it. If I'm going to tell it, I want to tell the entire story. And so that's going to take some time. Okay. Um, Fred Flogiston. These are great questions. You guys are really firing them at me. This is, this is good. How much money did they spend to become OT5, OT7? Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for sure. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to complain, before I got involved in Scientology, uh, there were a couple of times when I would actually complain to my parents about, especially my mom, about um, how much money they were spending and, and stuff. And my mom made the point to me basically to shut the fuck up because it wasn't my money, you know? <laughs> Um, and it was a very, I, I, I say that in this very harsh way, but it was actually, a, it was, it was an interesting conversation. I still remember it to this day. And, um, and yeah, they, they did spend a lot of money on Scientology, uh, for sure. Uh, let's see. Jacob Meyer, Moyer, are those, okay, I got to move in closer here. Can't really read that. Are those that join and leave Scientology still feeling like they got something positive out of it, simply the lucky ones that didn't encounter the craziness? Uh, yeah, to a, to a great degree, yeah. Um, more people come into Scientology, do a course or two, and leave than, than you can imagine. I mean, there's a lot of people who see it for what it is pretty quickly and take off, right? Um, and... Uh, and yeah, they're 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 just kind of you know the smart ones. <laughs> um, they're the ones who can kind of see through Hubbard's uh, contradictions and and weird anomalies and the fact that his stuff doesn't really make a lot of sense. You gotta you gotta work to make it make sense. And if you have a you know if you've had some kind of vested interest in making it make sense, then of course you can. And you know you can do that with anything. Um, but yeah, I'd say the guys who got out before they have to suffer financial hardships and abuses uh, are are the lucky ones. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Uh, the recovering Hunbot. Is that what that says? Mm -hmm. How does he get away with changing everything if he was not the original author? Does L. Ron Hubbard speak to him from beyond? <laughs> no. Nobody thinks that Hubbard is speaking to Miscavige from beyond. But... Miscavige does have an award, a pin that he wears, and a card that he carries around that he doesn't have to show anybody, but he has this. And this award literally says that he speaks for L. Ron Hubbard, that anything coming out of his mouth is as good as what comes out of L. Ron Hubbard's mouth. So that is the attitude that Scientologists have when they listen to David Miscavige talk, is they believe they are hearing uh, a 100% on-source communication. And in Scientology, on-source means that it is fully aligned with L. Ron Hubbard, what he wrote and what he intended. So Miscavige, for years and years, I mean, since the 1990s, he has worked on positioning himself to be the same as L. Ron Hubbard. And he's pretty much there now. Anything he goes out on a stage and says is what L. Ron Hubbard wanted, Scientologists swallow. Absolutely take it all in. Yes, he is the guy. He's the ecclesiastical leader. He's the one who fully duplicates L. Ron Hubbard's intention. And he's the one who's leading Scientology into the future to clear the planet. So, so that's the, 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 the authority that Scientologists invest in David Miscavige. And that's how he can get away with altering Scientology materials from the original source data and telling Scientologists, 
Well, I alter, you know, yes, it's different, but it's different because what was there before isn't what Ron intended. Somebody somewhere along the line altered it, screwed it up, messed it up. They changed what Hubbard wrote or said, and I'm fixing it back to the original. And that's how he gets away with it, is he's, is that's his sales line. And it's a pretty effective line in the world of Scientology because they don't critically think about what he's telling them. They just accept it. They have been indoctrinated to accept it. And for those in Scientology who don't accept David Miscavige's line or start questioning it, they become the target of ethics investigations very quickly. There's very little time between a person saying, you know, Miscavige doesn't, I don't really know that he knows what he's talking about. You know, anything like that, any kind of questioning of him. Boom. Dope. Out comes the ethics officer. Come with me. Let's go sit in a room. Pick up the cans, please. What have you done that David Miscavige nearly found out? What have you done that, you know, that you're not uh, willing to tell me? Are you engaged in any kind of criminal activity? Is there something you've done that, you know, that we should know about? I mean, there's a hundred variations of that question, all designed to, to introvert the person and make them feel that their questioning of authority springs from their own wrongdoings, their own sins, right? Their own overts. And that's what happens. And that drill, when it goes into play, is very effective, very effective. Because now you've put a person in that now they're in trouble and they then quickly start adjusting their thinking so that what David Miscavige says actually does make sense because they see that if they don't do that, this is only going to continue to get bad for them. And potentially at the end of the line, they could be declared and, and disconnected and lose family and friends. So that's kind of how that whole thing works. And I've been, I have been on the hot seat of questioning David Miscavige's orders. I was in that hot seat very early on. And I learned exactly how that, how that whole thing works. And I have experienced that pressure and it's effective. That's all I can say about that. All right. Boy, we're getting a lot of questions here. Um, we can, let me see if I can uh, shorten up my answers here so we can catch up. Preacher 1138, when someone is declared an SP, are they given a written notice saying why they are declared or are they just uh, said, you're declared, get out? It used to be that people would get written copies called a suppressive person declare. It was a big legal goldenrod sheet of paper that, that enumerated their crimes against Scientology according to Scientology justice codes and said why they were being declared and that they were bad people and that their only terminal was the international justice chief, blah, blah, blah. Um, that has pretty much ceased as a practice because people started posting their declares online and you could see that it was actually, you know, libel uh, and, um, you know, or slander. I can't remember which is the written and the spoken, but, you know, it was actually like not cool. There was character defamation going on in these declare orders. So now they don't post them anymore. They keep them on file and the SPs don't get copies of them. I specifically asked when I was declared, am I going to get a copy of mine? And I was told, no, you are not. So that's how that goes. All right. Susan Hepler. Hey, Susan. Uh, was just wondering what it, it what is be possible to find out what happened to Shelley Miscavige by using a look into all of the new property that the church is acquiring over the years. Um, no, not that I know of. Um, Shelley Miscavige's whereabouts are pretty figured out as far as we know. She is located up at CST. And uh, and we don't get to go behind the walls of CST. We have no right to do that, so we can't. And so the mystery of Shelley Miscavige is going to continue for as long as David Miscavige wants it to. And since he doesn't give a, a, a flying whatever about any what anybody thinks about what he's doing with his wife, uh, I don't think we're ever going to really see uh, the church put anything out about Shelley. They don't care what anybody thinks about that. Uh, let's see. Brandon, does a Scientologist believe past humans can be reincarnated into an animal? Yes, 
Scientologists do believe that's possible. Remember I mentioned earlier about pets, how they think that maybe their pet is occupied by a thetan? Well, then that would mean that some thetan came along and and occupied a animal body and that they could do the same thing in, in a future life if they so desired. Uh, Hubbard even talked about uh, thetans taking over a whole forest. You know, they wouldn't just take over a tree. The thetan would run the entire forest and all the animals and stuff, right? So, you know, that's uh, that's uh, other nonsense he was, he was peddling out there. Uh, okay, what do you see happening? Uh, with the, uh, oh, Preacher1138 asks, what do you see happening with the NOI-COS merger going forward? How does the NOI, which is the Nation of Islam, uh, justify joining forces with the Clorox white miscavige? Yeah. Um, the justification that is told to the NOI members is really all I can speak about on this. And that justification is that L. Ron Hubbard uh, was a prophet of, of sorts. I don't know that they use that word, but, but Farrakhan has definitely said that L. Ron Hubbard has discovered information that is useful to the members of the NOI. And that information is contained in the book, Dianetics, Modern Science of Mental Health, which is non-religious. It's a, it's supposed to be the science of the mind. And that was the entry. That was the gateway through which the NOI walked. And they started doing Dianetics. And it was no Scientology. Scientology was hands off. They were to be no sales or regging of the NOI members. They were only to come in and do Dianetics and co-audit with one another. And that was it. And Farrakhan sold that to the NOI as, yes, these are, you know, white devils. But L. Ron Hubbard, smart guy. And he came up with something that we can use and we're going to use it. And um, and so that was how a lot of them got on board. Some of them, including some of the NOI leadership, as the years went on, started asking about the Scientology stuff. They got the Dianetics stuff and they said, well, this was kind of cool. What else you got? And when they were reaching for it themselves is when the church said, okay, give it to them if they're asking for it. But again, no, don't go selling it to them. And over the years, some of the NOI, including Tony Muhammad, one of the leaders of, of the NOI, I think he's the West Coast leader, have gone quite a ways up the bridge to total freedom. So um, so they, so the Scientologists are so desperate for new members, they'll take anybody. You know, I mean, honestly, I think David Duke could show up and, and say, I want to do Scientology. And they'd be like, bring all your hooded friends along. We'll help them out. You know, I think they're really that far down the line. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, I, so I, how do I see it moving forward the way it is now? I don't think they have any, I don't think either group is, is, has enough or really any kind of, you know, heavy external pressure being placed on them to change what they're doing. And I don't think either group, they're so isolated. They're such insular destructive cults, both the NOI and Scientology that, their mindset is they don't give a shit what anybody outside says. You know, you can't judge me. So they think all of us are, you know, got to have our heads up our butts. So they they don't care what we think, you know. Uh, so I think that's why it's going to continue the way that it is. All right. Let's see if we can catch up here. Uh, Brian Scher, I was just watching a Q&A from a while ago. I always have you on in the background and you mentioned AA. Would you consider AA a form of cult? It certainly seems to exhibit cultic symptomatic behavior. Okay, Brian, I actually did a whole podcast on this. Is Alcoholics Anonymous a destructive cult? Uh, with uh, John Stewart, a friend of mine from the UK. Uh, you can look that up. It's a Sensibly Speaking podcast. And we address that question pretty thoroughly. So I'm just going to refer you there. The, 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 the spoiler is no, it's not a destructive cult. Um, there are groups that act there are individual AA groups or chapters that act with destructive cult methods. But is the whole thing a destructive cult? No, it doesn't really fit the model. So, no. Uh, all right. Nick Arlov, my marching band and I are going to Scientology Dallas in an hour. They claim to have free refreshments. Does Scientology have good food? Yes, sometimes they do. 
<laughs> they know without any question that to get people to their events, they need to give them food. Uh, we knew that that was like a that, that was like a worked out science uh, that we had to have food at our events and drinks and stuff. So not alcohol, but you know stuff for people to munch on. Uh, if you provide them with that, you get two to three times more people showing up. Sometimes four or five more times people showing up. So always have to have food. Uh, hey, TJ Feeney, thank you, man. Thank you very much. Uh, or woman, I'm not sure, TJ. <laughs> Did I just assume somebody's gender? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, and here's TJ Feeney's question. Thoughts on Pattinson? Oh, as the new Batman. I am curious. I am open-minded. I am curious. I My initial thought was, are you fucking kidding me? Um, but then I said, well, you know, let's not be one of those jerky jerks. Uh, Michael Keaton did great. You know, a lot of people, I mean, George Clooney did not do great. Val Kilmer did not do great. But Michael Keaton actually was okay. And everybody panned him before that, before that 80, what was it, 87? 89. 89. Before the 89 version of Batman came out, Michael Keaton was getting nothing but hate. Uh, and when the movie came out, people were like, oh, yeah, no, he did pretty good. Uh, so I'm going to keep an open mind on that one. But I'm ready to be disappointed. Let's put it that way. <coughs> Kyle Holworth, if you come to England, will you be coming to London and be possible to meet as I have visited the Black Fairs Cog interesting experience? Uh, okay. Well, I don't know what the Black Fairs Cog is, but I will definitely, if we go to London, I will definitely be letting people know because there are all kinds of people, I'm sure, in London that I would love to make, uh, to connect up with in real life. I think that would be a lot of fun. Maybe we could arrange a dinner or something. That'd be cool. Uh, okay. Hi, and 291. I keep seeing Church of Scientology comparing themselves to the Jews. Do they have any idea what happened during World War II? No, they don't. They don't. That It is a completely disgusting comparison. The Scientologists are in no way at all in a position like the Jews were in pre-World War II uh, Nazi Germany. It's not even like a remotely appropriate comparison. Um, there is no level of persecution being leveled against Scientology that Scientology itself has not deserved because of their abusive actions and illegal actions. And that's a whole different kettle of fish. So, so for the Church of Scientology to in any way say that they are being religiously persecuted is the most disgusting attempt to back off critics that could be made. Uh, so no, they don't. Uh, and the, and the, the people in OSA who might, who actually might have done some research should know better They they don't care. You know, they have to, their job is to, is to somehow, anyhow, present a public image that Scientologists are the good guys and us critics are the bad guys. And they'll use any analogy they can find to make that point. All right. Uh, Kyle, you're full of questions today. This is great. Have you heard of the game called Happy? Few reminds me of Scientology members. Um, game called Happy? No, I don't know what that is in reference to. Uh, the Taito Guardian. Uh, any recent developments about Scientology currently? Been out of the Scientology watching game for a while. Just wondering if there's any big news. Uh, lawsuits are happening right now against the Church of Scientology. Fairly important ones. You can look those up on Tony Ortega's blog. He's been reporting on them. There are two major lawsuits happening right now, a number of parties, and there will be more. These are civil lawsuits. They're not criminal cases, but they are bringing to light criminal activity on the part of David Miscavige and the Church of Scientology. And we have high hopes that these lawsuits will result in some um, some damp, some PR and financial and hopefully, um, you know, methodo methodology changes within the church uh, if these abuses can be brought to light and shown in a court of law to be real. Uh, and they are real. So it shouldn't be that hard of a task to do that. Um, then we can, you know, maybe uh, move that legal ball down the road and set some precedents and allow and open the doors for even more people who have been abused by Scientology and other destructive cults to make their case and have uh, their day in court. Okay, yeah, we are coming on the down down the line here. So, all right, let's see. Um, 
TJ Feeney, during your time in the church, did any passing member of the public or critic ever say anything to you that caused you doubts immediately or rock your beliefs in any way right there and then? No, there is nothing anybody said or did during the time that I was in Scientology that made me stand there thinking I'm doing something or I might be involved in something wrong. That didn't happen. What happened was seed planting, uh, anonymous uh, seed planted, uh, the internet, once I got on there, Tony Ortega's blog, those were the things that got me thinking, but it was a slow, gradual process. There was no boom kind of moment until, not until all of those things had lined up like dominoes. And that's generally, from my experience with others, that's kind of how it tends to go. There is eventually a light bulb moment, and I have talked about that moment. In fact, I did a whole video on it, but the lead up to that moment was 10 years in the making. So, all uh, right, preacher, since Scientology is supposed to give people supernatural communication skills, how does Scientology justify running away in terror from SPs? Uh, because they don't want the end theta, you know, because SPs are just, you know, it's not like you can handle an SP. You can just get him to... You can just push them away. You can't like make them not be an SP anymore. So, uh, so Scientologists running away from the SPs now, they really only do that because that's what OSA tells them to do because they, they've run into enough instances of, okay, remember Tori Crispin, uh, Tori Magoo, right? She wonderful lady. She used to work for OSA. She was a public Scientologist who would, and she'll tell, she tells her whole story. And it was exposure to critics that started waking her up and they don't want that. So now instead of going and getting in critics' faces and, and yelling and screaming, you know, how many babies did you kill today? They'll do that from time to time. But for the most part now, the uh, instead of attack, 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 uh, with protesters and, and critics who are right there in their face, the strategy now is just ignore them. Just get away from them. Don't let them create an effect on you, right, is the idea. All uh, right, Robert Roberts, uh, a thousand years from now, when civilization has fallen and we live as hunter-gatherers again, uh, then will the e-meter video be completed? Yes, that is when it is coming out. Anne Montgomery, we will, will we see the apostates anytime soon? Yes, that is actually being scheduled. We had one scheduled and something fell through with one of the three apostates and we are rescheduling that now. So you will see probably sometime within the next month, you will see a three apostates episode. Stephen Willis, do you think the free winds might be used to transport money across the Caribbean? Y yes, absolutely it is. I can't help but notice that the ABC Islands it visits are all tax havens with high levels of banking secrecy. Really? You noticed that, did you? Yeah. Funny that. Uh, Isabel Moran, what link do you make between a sales line and cognitive dissonance? Well, the sales line is what's used to settle the cognitive dissonance. When a person is experiencing cognitive dissonance, they have two different, two or more different kind of mutually exclusive ideas hitting them in the face. And, and that, and the dissonance, the noise that generates in the head because of that is referred to as cognitive dissonance. You're trying to sort out which is true and which is false, or what should I believe, or what should I think about this? And there's lots of different ways you can, you can tackle that. You could merge them. You could deny one. You could deny the other. You could deny them both. Um, so the sales line that Scientologists receive are designed to settle that cognitive dissonance in favor of what Scientology wants you to think. That's how that works. Uh, yes, yes. Okay, we're almost done. And this little trooper, this one right here, <laughs> is the is the force behind the force. This woman right here <laughs> is Amazeballs. Best wife ever. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, okay, two more questions and we're going to wrap up here. You guys have been great. These have been awesome questions. Uh, the recovering Hunbot follow up. So what will happen when Miscavige dies? Is there something waiting in the wings? How, what a line to sell. I am the same as Hubbard. Yeah. Um, nobody knows. It all depends. And I have addressed this in earlier Q&As. Um, 
no one knows how Miscavige is going to end up leaving the picture. Will he die? Will he be carted off to jail? Will he take off? There are multiple scenarios possible. Will there be a coup even? I mean, theoretically, that could happen. So all of those scenarios are going to result in different outcomes. So to predict what's going to happen is impossible because I don't know all the information I would need to know in order to, to figure out where is this all going. So I can't really speak intelligently in predictions about that because um, it all depends on how Miscavige is taken out. Okay. Uh, and Preacher, do you have any independent Scientologists who are fans of your show? If so, how do they reconcile and join your show while still practicing Scientology? No, I don't think I have any Indies who are fans of my show. In fact, I think most of the down votes that I get on my videos come from them. Uh, I'm pretty sure because I've I've definitely riled them up and pissed them off enough times that I think they're kind of permanent enemies of mine at this point. I don't, you know, I, I don't I don't consider them enemies of uh, from my perspective, but they I think they think I'm I'm uh, definitely persona non grata. Uh, and in MLMs that relates to now, how is it all on you, your fault, because you do not or did not believe and did not try enough? Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a statement of fact. That's how they work. They, they, it's all the blame is on you. Yeah, exactly. I should have mentioned that when I was talking about the MLMs earlier. Okay, guys. So we're going to wrap it up now. Um, you guys are awesome, man. <laughs> I really are. Thank you, all of you who participated. It was fun. And uh, we will do this again uh, in the not too distant future. And uh, let's let's call it a quits for today. <laughs>